Welcome to Question Period. Hope you're doing well. I'm Evan Solomon. Today on our program, RCMP racism. All I could remember was that I tried to stay awake and not pass out because of the blow that I was taken to the head. Shocking dash cam video has emerged of Alberta Chief Alan Adam getting violently detained just days after the RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky refused to say that there's systemic racism in the RCMP. Was she offside then? And did the emergence of the video force her to change her view on systemic racism on Friday? What needs to happen now? The National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations, Perry Belgar, joins us with his view and will play you part of my conversation with Chief Adam, who described that confrontation with police in that video in detail. Then, Follow the money. We will make sure that we are punishing people who try to take advantage uh, of this situation. The federal government wants to impose heavy fines and possible jail time for anyone abusing the Canadian Emergency Response Benefit and the wage subsidy program. Could Canadians who've made honest mistakes get penalized? And why does the government insist it can't give a fiscal update as it spends hundreds of billions of dollars? The Employment Minister Carla Qualtro joins us. Then MPs will debate why political fighting stopped money from flowing to people with disabilities. Then the Parliamentary Budget Officer Yves Giroud joins us with his thoughts on tracking the money and the need for oversight. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. 11 minutes and 53 seconds. That's how long the RCMP dash cam video that CTV News has obtained of police officers tackling, punching, and detaining the Chippewan First Nation Chief Alan Adam runs. Back on March the 10th, outside of a casino, Chief Adam and his family were stopped for an expired license plate. Now, over the length of this video, you see Chief Allen and his family get out of the truck n multiple times. He swears at the officers. At one point, he takes off his jacket and takes a fighting stance. But minutes later, things have clearly calmed down. And another officer runs in, tackles Chief Adam, punches him in the head, puts him in a chokehold, bloodies his face. The chief continually identifies himself, insists he's not resisting arrest. I spoke to Chief Adam earlier this week, and he went over exactly what happened. I wanted you to listen to his description as you watch this video. And a warning, this video footage is very graphic. He was very, being very aggressive, you know, and um, he started to question... You know, I started to question why he was treating my wife this way. And I eventually got out of the vehicle to find out why we were being harassed. The police officer took my left, you know, took my hand and twisted it behind my back. And, uh, you know, he started to march me to the police vehicle. And um, next thing you know, uh, you know, the second officer on charge came on there on the scene and it just assaulted me. Um, without any notice or given any discussion, like, you know, to the other officer about what was going on or anything, and, you know, uh, tackled me to the ground, you know, and then, you know, he placed his left arm on my, you know, my neck, and then he placed pressure on it, and then he placed his knee on my neck, and then he struck me several times in the face, you know. He accused me of uh, resisting arrest. That disturbing video emerged a day after the RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky refused to say in multiple interviews that there is systemic racism in the force. Instead, she said there's unconscious bias. She said she was even struggling to understand what systemic racism is. But then on Friday after the video, the commissioner backtracked saying, yes, there is systemic racism in the force. Is that enough? 
This isn't the only incident after all. Another RCMP officer was just caught on video slamming the door of his cruiser into an indigenous man in Nunavut. Is the RCMP taking systemic racism seriously enough? And should the RCMP commissioner be trusted to make the changes? Let's find out. Joining me now is the Assembly of First Nations National Chief, Perry Belgard. As you watch that video, and I've spoken to Chief Adam about it, mm -hmm. and it's very difficult to watch. What was your reaction as you watched it? Anger welled up. You know, how can people deny that there's, there is no racism or systemic racism or excessive use of force within the RCMP? It was a brutal takedown of, of Chief Alan Adam. That's what we saw. That's what we witnessed. And that's just not acceptable in 2020 or beyond. Like, it's too far, too much, too often that our people are getting hurt and are killed at the hands of the RCMP. And we know it has to stop. So I don't think we should engage in whether or not there is racism or systemic racism. There is. Let's start working towards solutions and how we fix it. Let me just go back because, you know, that video, that dash cam video emerged, but the RCMP had already seen that video and they determined that the officers acted appropriately. So they were able to see that same video that you saw, that I saw, that millions of Canadians have seen. And they said it was okay. That was a justifiable use of force. Uh, now that's going to be re-examined. What do you make of the fact that you know that the RCMP had first given those officers a pass? Again, another example of systemic racism uh, within the RCMP in terms of policies and process. If that was their initial finding, we know it's flawed, we know it's wrong, and things have to change. And if you want to fix systemic racism, you need to start looking at systemic change. And that begins right at the top. You know, that, that's what has to happen, systemic change. If that's what they first found, that they gave them a pass, totally unacceptable. That second RCMP individual that came in, came in flying. There was no de-escalation. There was no trying to keep things at peace. There was a straight attack. Totally not acceptable. The RCMP serves 600 Indigenous communities. Do they, tr in your feedback, it's not a monolith, I know, but is the trust with the RCMP broken? The trust has been broken with all police forces. You know, not only the RCMP, OPP, the SQ in Quebec. You know, these police forces, these men and women, are sworn to uphold and serve and protect all people, including First Nations people. But it's difficult to trust people, you know, especially when the RCMP were the ones to pick up our kids to go into the residential schools. It's hard to, how do you trust people when you see that video, that violent takedown of Chief Allen Adam? How do you trust? It's very difficult. And so we need to start working together as soon as possible to fix a system that's broken. And systemic racism needs systemic change. And it starts from the very, very top and start looking at policies and procedures to end this violence. Excessive use of force, it's clear, it's there. We've got to work together to fix it. What? And that's what we've got to put our energies and focus our attention on going forward. Uh, everything from body cams, everything from um, better screening of RCMP members to get rid of racist views getting more First Nations people into positions of authority as commanding officers, getting more independent uh, advisory boards of, of civilians with First Nations people on it. There's so many things that can be looked at. We've got to start that process now. Sir, so you, you would like to see body cam, something that the Prime Minister has talked about. Would you support, and this has been a term that has been used a lot lately, defunding the RCMP. That just means not taking all the money away, but reallocating some of their resources towards, for example, indigenous programming or support services. Would you support that? That's one of the solutions. That's all, like, you're not gonna have one silver bullet on how to fix this. Everything under the sun should be looked at. Look at all options, look at all recommendations, look at all systems. Is there enough monies put toward de-escalation training, dealing with mental health 
issues and concerns, dealing with substance abuse issues, uh, all those things can be looked at. We want to de-militarize um, de the police. I think I'm saying it that correctly. Demilitarize the police. Yeah, and, and just start dealing with community policing uh, and start making sure, like, even a simple thing, like having policing seen as an essential service. You know, that's something that we've got to work on right now. It's not seen as an essential service for First Nations people. It's a program. So you got to look at a legislative base. And then you got to make sure that it's community focused, that there's cultural practices and traditions and the, the, the leaderships involved in developing the possible policing framework that has to be put in place at the community level. So there's lots of things that have to happen. There's no question. It's just that in 2020, again, I'm going to keep stressing, it's not acceptable to see that excessive use of force within a police force that is sworn to protect and serve people, including First Nations people. Last thing before I, I let you go, I, ha I had that conversation with Chief Adam myself. It was very powerful. Then, then I saw the dash cam video and it, it was shocking to say the least. Uh, what do you think needs to happen in that particular case now in order for people to believe real change is possible? What would your message be to the commissioner well, I would uh, support Chief Allen Adam and his request. You know, that those, uh, uh, the, the people involved, there should be a thorough investigation, independent investigation. Uh, and, and the people that have done the assault should be, sh should be brought to bear. Should they really be, remain in the RCMP? You know, I would say no. Like, there's so many things that have to be asked. These questions start with a thorough review, making sure that these policies and programs are in place to make sure that this has never happened again. This can never happen again, this excessive use of force. So how do we ensure that going forward? You know, I don't believe the RCMP members involved should get a pass on this one. It's just, again, if they do, there's your systemic racism in action. And that can't be tolerated going forward. National Chief Bellegarde, a powerful statement. I appreciate your time this morning. Thank you, sir. Thanks for the opportunity, Evan. All right, coming up on our program, will the Canadian emergency response benefit be extended? Will there be a crackdown on fraudsters? And why won't the government give a fiscal update on the hundreds of billions of dollars being spent? We put those questions to the Employment Minister Carla Qualtro next. Stay right here with Question Period. So the government is in the hot seat after months of cooperation from the opposition. There are suddenly calls from the Conservatives and the Bloc to give a fiscal update on the massive spending package, something the government has refused to do. There are calls from the NDP for the government to cancel a bill that would crack down on fraudsters for the Canadian Emergency Response Benefit. There's a controversy as to how much help the government is giving to provinces. The $14 billion has strings attached and the Premiers want those strings cut. So what's ahead? Let's find out. The Employment Minister Carla Qualtro joins us. Always good to have you on the program. Hope you and the family are well. Let's just start with this fiscal update because the Parliamentary Budget Watchdog, who will join our program later, has repeatedly said your government should and could bring a fiscal update. He's done it. It's key for transparency. Why won't your government do that now? Well, Evan, we honestly believe that right now we're still at the point in the crisis where it would be far too speculative to do any kind of economic projections. And so we remain of the opinion that when, you know, as soon as we think it would be prudent to do so, we will. Um, you know, I can tell you from the point of view of my own 
uh, emergency measures, I could tell you how much we are spending and projecting to spend kind of per month, but I can't tell you what the economic impact of that will be. Right now, we just don't think it's the right time. But it, it, you know, when is the right time for accountability and transparency? Why is that suspended in a crisis? The opposition are saying you won't give us a fiscal update. The Conservatives are saying you won't have the regular sitting of Parliament. So you've hamstrung opposition to do things like private members' bills, opposition days, debating legislation. That's been curtailed. I guess it's starting to look like, is your government saying, sorry, in a crisis, there's, no, there's really not the time for transparency and accountability. Yeah, I think that's a big leap, I'm going to tell you. Um, and, and I kind of reject the fact that the, the party parliament decided that we were going to proceed in this way. It's not like we unilaterally decided. We, we had a majority agree to go forward in this way. I feel like I'm being questioned all the time. I feel like, you know, the, the, the bill that, that was not introduced ultimately on Wednesday to my real disappointment on the disability side, you know, we, we were absolutely prepared to debate that. The plan was, the agreed upon path forward was to debate on Wednesday afternoon. So it's kind of artificial to say the only way to have done that is if we could have done it the way the Conservatives proposed it. We were there ready to debate it on Wednesday. Uh, to be fair, you have to fast track it, so that required unanimous consent because of uh, the format right now and because you couldn't get unanimous consent in a minority government. That's a problem right. that all minority governments have to face. Now, let me just move on to Canadians caught abusing 100%. The, the Canadian emergency response benefit. They could face fines of up to $6,000 or six months in jail under the, the new legislation that was not passed. There's a snitch line from the Canadian Revenue Agent now, Agency now to snitch on neighbors. Let me just ask you, how much fraud do you believe there is in the system right now? What percentage of the 8.4 million Canadians do you think have committed an act of fraud? Well, as I've said before, our best estimate, and it's only an estimate, is about 1% to 2%. If we're going on past fraudulent behavior of Canadians within government programs. Um, but the reality is, because of the way we're doing our integrity and uh, following up on applications, we'll have a much better sense once we do all the, the back-end work. Uh, in the meantime, though, we are not going after vulnerable people, as is being suggested by some parties. In fact, we're trying really hard to go after the people who are preying on vulnerable people. Uh, is the government ready to extend CERB through January? That would, I think it would cost about $64 billion. It's already over $40 billion. That's what the NDP is calling for. Is your government yeah. ready to uh, extend CERB? Well, first of all, let me, let me give you the number. The number is about $17 billion a month. That's what CERB is causing, uh, costing the government of Canada, costing taxpayers. Um, what we are absolutely committing to is not like abandoning Canadians three weeks from now. We want to make sure that whatever we do moving forward supports people, incentivizes work. You know, CERB was created um, to help people who we were asking to stay home. We're now asking people to go back to work safely. We will be supporting Canadians. We're working on the best way to do that, um, perhaps through CERB, uh, in a way that doesn't disincentivize work and that keeps supporting people because there won't be many jobs, but we want people to take the ones that are going to be out there. Do you have any idea why the CERB seems to be the economic raft most Canadians are using to ride out the economic flood, but the wage subsidy, as I understand, I think that the uptake is only about 10 or 15 percent, so it's way below what you expected. What's going on there? Why aren't people using the wage subsidy and they're clinging to the CERB life raft? 
Yeah, it's a really important question, and I had thought, and I think a lot of us had thought, that in creating the wage subsidy, there'd be a natural transition from CERB to the wage subsidy of more people. People would be offered their jobs back, we would have more people, the wage subsidy costs and numbers would go up, and CERB costs and numbers would go down. That hasn't happened uh, yet, and perhaps it will as we introduce better flexibility into the wage subsidy. What I'm hearing on the ground, kind of putting on my MP hat, is that we just don't know how many people we need. So as much as I can give somebody 75% of their salary, I don't know if I need five people in my shop right now or 25. So it's too unpredictable. We're gonna keep people on CERB for another month and, and let it play out a little further. But I honestly don't know. I'm hoping that when we get the second wave of data from the second month, we'll have a better understanding of the actual numbers of, of transition from CERB to the wage subsidy. The other thing is the support for the provinces. Um, the premiers talked to the prime minister Thursday night. They want more than the 14 billion that's being offered for reopening. But here's the other thing. There's strings attached to the money. The prime minister said you gotta use it for 10 day paid sick leave or PPE or other issues. The province says, look, we know better how to spend money. We know what we need. We need A, more money for municipalities and for provinces and cut the strings. Is your government open to that? Yeah, I think the Prime Minister had a really good uh, another conversation last night with the Premiers of all the provinces and territories to really dig in on the kind of parameters we would like to see uh, in as we distribute this $14 billion. It's a lot of money. And what we think provinces should be spending money on um, really is the starting part for these discussions. We don't know the proportion. We're not going to tell them how much on each section. But as we do kind of the safe restart, these are the areas that quite frankly have been identified through working with the provinces, kind of understanding where they've asked us for help, the things they've indicated are priority areas for them. Um, I spent some time on the phone the other day with some ministers from my own province and, and they see flexibility in the way we've put it right. forth. Um, but there's a lot more conversations to be had. All right, I gotta leave it there. Minister Qualtrough, always good to have you on the program. Thank you. Nice to see you, nice to talk to you, Evan. You too. Coming up on the program, the opposition weighs in on the CERB issue, on the need for a fiscal update, and is it a conflict of interest at all for the Minister of Foreign Affairs to have over $1 million mortgage with the Bank of China? All that and lots more next. Stay right here with Question Period. got to stop playing these petty partisan games with their programs, get back to work, let Parliament resume so we can get these benefits out to people with disabilities and other Canadians who are falling through the cracks of Justin Trudeau's programs. I guess you could say the Sesame Street moment of parliamentary cooperation that began with the COVID-19 crisis is over. Now, I don't know, Parliament's looking a lot more like mixed martial arts with fights over the need for a fiscal update, fights over the collapse of unanimous consent needed to pass legislation to help Canadians living with disabilities, fights over the crackdown on CERB fraudsters. And now, add to the call from some MPs that the Foreign Affairs Minister, Francois-Philippe Champagne, should step down after the Globe and Mail first revealed that he'd taken out a $1.7 million mortgage on two properties in London, England, from the Bank of China. He did publicly disclose those to the Ethics Commissioner. He'd obtained those mortgages before he entered politics and he got a fair commercial rate. Still, does that leave him with the perception of a conflict on a critical file? Let's bring in MPs to debate all that. Sean Fraser is the Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Finance. Dan Albus is the Conservative Employment Critic and Daniel Blakey is the NDP Employment Critic. Great to have all of you guys on and I hope your families are right. Mr. Albus, I'll start with you. First of all, on the fiscal update, Prime Minister says there's just, it's just too fluid. It's pointless to release one now. Should there be one, and, and why is it so important? 
Well, first of all, we're seeing hundreds of billions of dollars that have been spent over the last two and a half months with major decision points coming up ahead. And when the Parliamentary Budget Office comes to a parliamentary committee and, and looks at everyone and says, I can't give you an honest answer, and asks to have a, a fiscal update so that they can refresh uh, their projections and frameworks so that they can do their work to inform us as parliamentarians, but also the Canadian public as to what our status is, that's disheartening. We've been calling on the government to give us information. The Minister of Finances has refused to give us information. We can't even find out what the status of the EI fund is. So we have lots of questions, Evan, and the Parliamentary Budget Office, uh, an officer of Parliament, uh, deserves that information, and so do Canadians. So, Mr. Fraser, why, just, why not give that information? It seems critical. It, if, you, if, if the stuff's out of date, just do it again in another month. What's the problem with getting those figures to Canadians? This is a really important question. To, uh, to my colleague's point, there has been an unprecedented amount of emergency spending to respond to the pandemic. But to suggest that there hasn't been any sort of transparency with this spending because there's not been a fiscal update is, is frankly disingenuous. Uh, the Honourable Member would know uh, that the Finance Minister or his delegate has been showing up at the Finance Committee every two weeks, as was agreed to through a motion by the various parties represented in the House, to provide an update on what measures have been advanced. The reality of the situation, Evan, is that there's so many assumptions that go into something like a fiscal update that are up in the air as a result of the uh, fluid public health emergency that it would be difficult to provide reliable information. A fiscal update doesn't just provide information about government spending, but actually has the ability to move markets because it's relied upon by many different stakeholders across Canada. Once we have clarity on what the scene is going to look like for a longer period than a few weeks, we'd be very happy to provide a fiscal update. Until then, we're going to continue to provide routine updates through the Prime Minister's daily briefings or through the appearances well, of the Finance Committee, which all parties have agreed to. Well, Mr. Blake, is, a, is that enough transparency and is that enough to get support of the NDP to continue these programs? For example, the NDP did not agree to unanimous consent to help uh, Canadians living with disabilities. Why not? Well, well, actually, we did, Evan, because we uh, we were prepared to offer unanimous consent to split that off from the rest of the bill, which which is the more contentious stuff. We're disappointed with the way that the government chose to move forward on the question of assisting people living with disabilities, but uh, but we want to move forward with at least what's on offer, and then work to get something better for all the for the sixty percent of people living with disabilities who are getting left behind by this plan. So we were prepared to work with the government on that one. It was the Conservatives that denied unanimous consent to split the bill. Uh, but when it comes to the question of a, of, a, of a fiscal update, I have to say I just don't understand the government's reticence. I. You know, I don't think anyone expects that a fiscal update is supposed to give a complete, accurate prediction of the future. Uh, people want to know what the government thinks its fiscal position is right now, given what we know right now, and to get a sense of context for what government spending is doing. I think that's entirely appropriate. It's disconcerting because you, you, you get the impression that the government isn't doesn't have a sense of where we're at and doesn't care to. Okay, guys, I, I want to just quickly move on for time. I want to move on to this notion of the mortgages, and I'll start with you, Mr. Fraser. The Minister of Foreign Affairs, uh, it was revealed that he had already disclosed to the Ethics Commissioner that he had $1.7 million mortgages on two properties in London, England, with the Bank of China. I understand he disclosed it. I understand there were commercial rates, and I understand he did it before he got into politics. But now he's the Minister of Foreign Affairs. China's the hottest file. You got Huawei, Meng Wanzhou, you got two Canadians who have been held in detention. 
The mandate letter he received from the Prime Minister says, quote, the arrangement of your private affairs should bear the closest public scrutiny. It's an obligation not fully discharged by simply acting within the law. Does this bear scrutiny? Does it pass the smell test? Look, I, I can tell you that I, I don't think that this uh, this issue is in the news for any reason other than trying to score uh, political points on, on a red herring that's unconnected to the emergency that has taken the attention of Canadians over the past few months. Uh, I'm sure my colleagues will be shocked that as the parliamentary secretary on the finance file, who has a hand in, in the uh, mortgage and banking sector, that I too hold a mortgage from a Canadian bank. The reality is the minister lived in the United Kingdom at the time and, and took out a commercial a mortgage on commercial terms. Uh, this to me is, is not a controversy. He followed the rule to the letter every step of the way. And to try to make a mountain out of a molehill when Canadians are worried about putting food on the table and keeping a roof over their heads uh, it is to me uh, uh, beneath what we should be discussing in the House of Commons. Dan Albus, what do you think? Is there a perception of a problem here? Or did he just follow the rules and this is just all political gamesmanship? What's your take? Well, again, the Prime Minister stay, stated very clearly that it's up to the Minister to arrange his affairs that don't discredit uh, his, own, uh, his own ministry. And so what we're seeing here, Evan, is at the very, at the very least, it's uh, a form of, of um, a failure of the government or, or a failure of the minister. And it's a terrible optics, a terrible look uh, to be actually indebted to the Bank of, of China. On the flip side, right now, this is one of our most critical relationships. If this could be used for leverage on our number one diplomat, that's a problem. And that's why my leader called for today that the uh, Canada-China Special Committee should meet and to call the minister forward so he can account for this, uh, because quite honestly, this is an important issue. And yes, there are issues with COVID-19, but the government has to keep track of all these issues, right. particularly on the China front. But Mr. Mr. Blakey, he had disclosed it. I mean, it's not a big, I know it was reported, but the ethics commissioner knew. There's nothing illegal about it, is it? But does it pose a perception problem when dealing with China? Well, I think it does. And I mean, it's not just the China question, although that obviously is also very important. But we're also talking about a government right now who is uh, proposing to change the laws to crack down on working people who are concerned about going back to work because they're not sure that their workplace is uh, safe. And they're letting big corporate tax frauds off for a long time and have. And so now we've got a minister who, you know, is coming to light as kind of right in the world of international uh, finance. He's got properties in London from a Chinese bank. And while that's not against the rules, I think it does make Canadians wonder how in touch their government is with the problems that they're facing right now during the pandemic. It's incumbent upon the minister to do as much as possible to put Canadians at ease. I don't think he's met that threshold yet. So uh, he needs to be a lot more open and forthcoming about what's going on here and uh, tell people not just that it isn't their business and I did the paperwork, so don't worry about it, but actually tell people uh, why they should feel at ease with this. And if he can't come up with an explanation that makes people feel at ease, then uh, you know, then he should be contemplating some next steps. Come on, what, what, that, that's the question, what next steps? We'll have to pick that up, I gotta leave it there. Sean Fraser, Dan Albus, and Daniel Blakey. Uh, interesting discussions, lots more to come. I appreciate your time, gentlemen, thanks. Thank you very much. Coming up, how important is it for the federal government to actually produce those numbers that we just talked about? The parliamentary budget officer has been listening, and Yves Giroux will join us with his view next. Stay right here with Question Period. There are so many things that we simply don't know that making projections about what 
our economy could look like six months from now or a year from now uh, would be an exercise in, uh, in invention and imagination. So the Prime Minister keeps insisting there's no point in issuing a fiscal update on the hundreds of billions of dollars being spent on these COVID-19 emergency programs. He argues the situation's just too fluid and the numbers would be out of date, so there's no point. Is that true? Should there be more oversight on all the money going out the door? Should the government really be cracking down on people who have defrauded the COVID benefit program known as the CERB, the Canadian Emergency Response Benefit, as they have legislation to do? Remember, the CRA has already even established a snitch line where anyone can report suspected CERB fraud. So to talk about all that and more, the scrum is here. Molly Thomas, our reporter for CTV News here in Ottawa. Ian Bailey is a reporter with the Globe and Mail in Vancouver. And our special guest for this round is the Parliamentary Budget Officer himself, Yves Giroux. Good morning to all of you. Great to have you here. And I'll start with the uh, Independent Officer of Parliament. Um, the Prime Minister keeps saying, we can't do this, a fiscal update. Um, should the government do it? Uh, and could the government do it, given the fluid nature of the numbers? Of course they could do it, and of course they should do it. The proof that they could do it is that the Federal Reserve last week issued an economic forecast. So the moment you have an economic forecast, if you're the government of Canada, you know how much money you are spending because there are very bright people at the Department of Finance who keep a very close eye on that. So the moment you have an economic forecast, you know how much money is coming in and how much money is going out the door, you can release a fiscal update. So if the Fed can do it, I'm sure that the bright minds at the Department of Finance are capable of putting together an update and the government could deliver that very quickly if they wanted to. And they should do that. Uh, just before I go to the others, uh, your office, which is significantly smaller than the finance department, has been doing that. Where, where, what number are, are we at and why is it important to know that number right now? Well, right now we estimate that the deficit for the current fiscal year will be between 250 and 260 billion dollars. And that's assuming that there are no additional fiscal measures introduced over the next couple of weeks and months. Uh, and it's important to know where we are fiscally speaking because it, it informs future decisions as to spending or not spending. For example, if we know we're at $250 billion and the government has a clear plan to return to balanced budgets or something that's lower deficits, then there is potentially some room for stimulus measures. But if the government has no plans to return to uh, more balanced budgets or small, much smaller deficits, then parliamentarians and Canadians would be right to say stop the spending, put a break on spendings. Mm. But right now, we have no idea as Canadians and parliamentarians what is the government's plan going forward. So an update would enlighten us as to what to expect from this government. Molly, the debate about the fiscal update is about transparency. Look, this is a minority government. Governments fall over what they're called matters of supply, money, money issues. Uh, and the bloc has wanted uh, a fiscal update in order to get their support. How, how do you regard how this is playing out, this larger debate about transparency and oversight? I think Canadians have given uh, Mr. Trudeau a free pass, a fair and free pass for the beginning of this pandemic. But we're three months in now, Evan. We're, we're back into the reopening stage around the country. And, and it's just not good enough anymore. I mean, good, thank goodness Mr. Giroux and his team are putting out some numbers for us to have an idea of what's going on. But we need more than that. And then it does. It plays into that transparency issue. And it makes people wonder if you're not, if you're holding back these numbers for us, 
why are you doing it? It also plays into the conservatives' point that, hey, we there's more being held back. We need to be in parliament. We need to have a democracy where we have at least 50 people on each side in in the House of Commons. And so it plays into that larger question about what else is being held back. But I think Canadians want to know how much money we're spending altogether. Uh, Ian, what about how, how, how do you view this government? Uh, the defense of no fiscal update, but also the larger question of transparency and how parliament's functioning three months into this crisis. You know, Evan, out here, British Columbians, like many Canadians, most Canadians have bought into, have signed on for the, the, the fight against this pandemic, taking measures, extraordinary measures to sort of um, do what's necessary to sort of flatten the curve and such. So I think Canadians want to know what's going on. They, they, you know, to paraphrase a line from a film or twist it around, they can handle the truth about the, the amounts of money that are being spent here and such. I mean, the, the basic numbers are out there. So folks are aware of where these numbers are. So I think most voters would want to know, most Canadians would want to know and could handle fiscal update, some sense of deficit, dealing with the deficits, the, the whole nine yards of this whole situation so that things can be figured out and, and paths can be charted for the next steps ahead. And Evan, I'll just say, you know, give, give us a chance as a younger generation to know what we're in for. I mean, we're the ones that are going to be paying this over the next 50 years. And so as the younger Canadians in this country, we need to know what we're up against. Uh, by the way, Molly, all of us are pretending we're part of that generation <laughs> right now. Uh, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Giroux, uh, let me ask you, the Minister of Employment told me that there's between a 1% and 2% uh, of the people using the CERB, which is about 8.4 million people who are defrauding the system. But there are critics who say there could be more. For example, the StatsCan Labor Force survey uh, for May found that 5 million Canadians had lost their jobs between February and May, but 7.5 million had applied for the CERB. You're the number cruncher. What does that tell you? Does that mean the delta or the number of people abusing it may be higher than we think? Well, we have to keep in mind that the CERB is not only for those who have lost their jobs, but also for those who have significantly seen a reduction in the number of hours they work. So all those who still work but earn less than $1,000 per month. So that explains part of the delta. But we have heard many anecdotes of people who are on social assistance, for example, claiming the CERB and getting it, keeping in mind that in early April, the, the, the dynamic was get the money out as fast as possible. So the only thing you needed to get a CERB was a social insurance number and a bank account number. So there needs to be significant enforcement measures now that we are not in the same urgency to ensure that there is not that much fraud. But when the minister says between one and two or three percent um, fraud, uh, that still amounts to significant change. It's it's not like pocket change when you're talking about a benefit that's paid out um, close to $44 billion to this day, and it's mounting every day. So even a small percentage, as the minister claims, it amounts to significant money. And, and my bet, uh, having worked at CRA before, is that the two, three percent number that they're in fraudulent cases is probably very, very optimistic. I wouldn't be surprised if it was uh, several times that number, because keep in mind, you offer 2000 bucks for everybody who applies. The incentive is to apply and try it, get get a give it give it a good college try. Yeah, and that could amount to, in terms of fraud, a billion or more dollars. Ian, uh, what, there's also the question of extending it. I mean, the help has to go on. There's the $14 billion the provinces have been offered. They want more money. They don't want the strings attached to it to be for the 10-day sick leave or PPE. Um, then there's the extension of the, of the CERB. 
what concerns do, do we have from an economic and a social point of view of these programs going on and on and on? Well, I guess escalating deficits and, and, and billions of dollars more in spending. You know, it's extraordinary to watch this thing. I mean, the, the CERB, these programs came out to deal with the crisis situation. The polls suggest the government has been rewarded for, um, for introducing these programs, but, but that wasn't the end of it. And now they're going to be judged and there is going to be scrutiny for how they take them to the next inevitable step in terms of winding them down, carrying them on, whatever they have to do to sort of manage this. It's, it's not over with just rolling out the money. Yeah, and Molly, the PBO who's on our show right now has already made an estimate that if they extend the CERB, it could go up to 60 to $70 billion. So the, the total could go up. Yeah, I mean, it's going to cost money, but I think we have to gauge and look at the Canadian population, figure out how many people are actually able to go back to work, how many people um, don't have fear to go back to work. I mean, we're dealing with high anxiety in this country around how to uh, function again. And so all of those things are going to matter, and it, and it does matter about taking care of those people and, and the most marginalized communities as well. So we have to weigh out, factor in all these things, but around that have a fiscal update so at least we know how much that we're spending. Guys, I gotta leave it there. It's a critical moment, but these programs are gonna keep going and we'll need your calculator, Mr. Giroux. Always appreciate you joining us uh, on the program. Coming up, how deep is systemic racism in the RCMP? Did the violent video of Chief Adam force the commissioner to change her view on systemic racism? We'll debate that with the Scrum and our special guest is former leadership candidate for the Conservative Party of Canada, Michael Chong. Stay with us. We have all now seen the shocking video of Chief Adams' arrest, and we must get to the bottom of this. Like many people, I have serious questions about what happened. The independent investigation must be transparent and be carried out so that we get answers. Alberta's Serious Incident Response Team is investigating the violent arrest of the Alberta Chief Alan Adam. Dashcam video of the incident shows an officer repeatedly punching Chief Allen, putting him in a chokehold. Is this a sign of systemic racism within the RCMP? The RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky denied there was systemic racism until that video came out. Then on Friday, she totally changed her mind. Is she out of touch with her own force? Was she wrong in the first place to say it doesn't exist? And what changes need to be made? The Scrum is back to tackle all that. Plus some big debates coming up this week in the Conservative leadership race. Molly Thomas is back. Ian Bailey from the Globe and Mail is back. And our special guest this round is the former Conservative leadership candidate and current MP for the Conservatives, Michael Chong. You watched that video. Your reaction and could you say if there is systemic racism in the RCMP? Look, I watched the video and I was disturbed and concerned by what I saw during the arrest of Chief Alan Adam. Uh, I don't want to say any more than that because it's in front of the courts and I don't want to prejudice proceedings. But what I will say is it's clear from a number of national commissions and inquiries, such as the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Commission, that the RCMP has systemically discriminated against Indigenous peoples in the past. That's clear. Um, whether there's systemic racism, racism in the force, I don't know. I haven't uh, received enough information to come to that conclusion. But what I do know is that this is precisely the type of thing that a parliamentary committee made up of MPs from all parties should investigate, call witnesses and come to a conclusion. But we can't currently do that because the Prime Minister has shut down Parliament. 
Uh, Molly, it's interesting because Perry Bellegarde was on the show earlier saying, I don't want to go back to square one on this debate if there's systemic racism. He keeps saying, we keep going back to it. We've established that. Let's move to solutions. And yet parliamentarians keep saying, well, let's reinvestigate. What do you make of it? We keep going back to the same people instead of talking to the racialized communities, the indigenous Canadians in this country who have been within the force, who have been victims of the force in many in instances. Let's listen to their, their voices for once. And when we start hearing those stories, we know repeatedly time and time again that there are systemic problems here. The fact that the commissioner of the RCMP cannot point that out. I want to know when exactly she saw this video involving Chief Alan Adam. I want to know exactly when she saw it and whether she did, if she saw it before I mean before she came out and said systemic racism doesn't exist like let's look I hope the country is taking a really hard look at one instance unfortunately that represents so many in our country Ian what did you when you saw the video and you heard the commissioner's response to this uh, what did you make of it well th this video is a, is a disturbing video and um, I, I you know putting us you know putting aside the, the commissioner's response I mean this the, all parties in this video need to be I want to hear from them in court. Uh, I know that the Alberta police watchdog is looking at it. And, and I want to know, hear from all parties on what was going on here, and certainly from the police. All of this for a license plate violation. I want to hear uh, them hold, held to account and to explain their conduct in this video. Um, as for the uh, commissioner's uh, comments, obviously, you know, you know, there's a discussion going on here, and let's have a vigorous discussion on this. And here's hoping that this leads at some point to reform, to deal with some of these issues. So even though on Friday, the RCMP commissioner finally backtracked on saying there was no systemic racism in the force. She sees the video now. She says there is systemic racism. Clearly changes are needed, but the prime minister has always held this position. Is it a problem that they clearly, for until Friday, they had a very different view of what needs to happen for the RCMP? Um, the government of Canada needs to speak with one voice. And when you have the prime minister saying one thing and the commissioner of the RCMP saying another, that's a big problem. Um, I think clearly the RCMP has had problems with discrimination against Indigenous peoples in the past. That's clear. Um, the force has had problems with sexism in the past. It's also had problems with a lack of uh, representation from minorities in this country. You know, only about 7% of, only about 11% of the RCMP is made up of minorities in a country where their presence in the population is double that number. Right. Uh, there have been reports of racism in the force. Uh, retired RCMP officers, uh, black Canadians have indicated that uh, they were subject to the use of the N-word frequently in front of them by their fellow officers. Those sorts of things are well documented. I think it's time for a parliamentary committee to take a look at this issue, come to conclusions, and to hold the government accountable on this. Uh, Ian Bailey, will there be calls for Commissioner Lucky to be replaced? I, I, I wouldn't expect that will happen. It depends how this unfolds in the coming, uh, coming weeks uh, as the government tries to advance its agenda on the reforms that the Prime Minister has kind of hinted about, that Bill Blair has hinted about. So we'll have to see. It, it, it remains to be seen, I'd say. Uh, let me just quickly go to the leadership debate. Now, I'll start with you, Molly, on this uh, French and English leadership debate next week in the conservative leadership. Race. This is going to be one of the issues for sure. What are you watching for as the four contenders have these two debates? Yeah, I think uh, the important thing for conservative candidates is to not be tone deaf on these conversations, to really speak what they think of them and to very clearly articulate where they stand on social justice issues. This is what the country, this is what the world is talking about. And so we can't just rely, they can't just rely 
rely on their party platforms that have very clear ideals of what they think Canada should be, but they need to weigh in when Canadians are talking about an issue. I was encouraged, you know, to see Leslyn Lewis talk about uh, the Chief Alan Adam video on her on her uh, Twitter. Erin O'Toole did that as well, and and Mr. Shear as well, all saying there needs to be an investigation. We need to look into these types of things. But then you also need to go a step further, I think, and 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 call out systemic racism and not be afraid to have that conversation. Michael Chung, what are you looking for on that issue and other issues next week to figure out who you would endorse? Well, I'm looking for leaders in this country to take a strong issue on what I consider to be the biggest uh, violation of um, minority rights in this country, the biggest systemic discrimination in Canada, and that's Bill 21. Uh, bill 21 is a bill that bans observant Sikhs, Jews, and Muslims from uh, jobs in the public service in the province of Quebec. It bans Sikhs, Jews, and Muslims from becoming police officers, teachers, and other frontline workers in the public service. Um, it is the most egregious form of systemic discrimination in this country. In fact, you can't get any more dis systemic than a state-sponsored bill that uses the full course of power of the state to discriminate against these minorities, many of them, most of them, visible minorities as well. So I'm looking for leadership uh, candidates. I'm looking for the prime minister of this country to take a much stronger stand on this bill. Um, the prime minister has talked a good game. I've sat through many speeches in the House of Commons where he has said that we need to stand up against racism and discrimination in all its forms, and yet, he and his government have failed to act on this issue. And they have paid lip service uh, with respect to this issue and have done nothing to protect these very vulnerable minorities in the province of Quebec. You know, Evan, this, this bill is a stain on this country. It is no different than the Jim Crow segregationist laws of the U.S. South before the 1960s. And the arguments being put forward in favor of this bill are the exact same arguments put forward in the segregationist U.S. South. You know, they say it's provincial jurisdiction. Well, the same arguments were made about states' rights. They say that uh, it's not about race or targeting minorities, that it's about laicite or secularity. That's the same argument they made about these segregationist laws. They said it was, a, was not about targeting blacks. It was about separate but equal. Uh, this bill needs to be challenged by the federal government. It should use its powers to seek intervener status in this case. It should use all its powers, its spending powers, its other powers, to seek justice on behalf hmm. of those vulnerable Canadians in the province of Quebec. Guys, I, I got to leave it there. Michael Chong, Molly Thomas, and Ian Bailey, thanks for joining us, and thank all of you for sharing part of your Sunday with us. Look, as we all just said, these are very fraught times. They're times of change and transformation, so I want to thank you for joining in the critical conversations that are taking place around all these issues. I'll see you tomorrow on CTV's Power Play, 5 p.m. Eastern on CTV News Channel. Take good care of each other. See you in seven days as well.